This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Or do you have to kick it off with Equity Mates Investing Podcast now? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm going to slightly change it. Oh, really? What are you going to do? Yeah, I'll still start with Equity Mates. How are you going to change? No, don't tell me. Surprise me. Equity Mates. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Equity, mate. Episode 14. Pumped to be with here with you guys again with my equity buddy, Ren, as always. How are you, mate? I'm very good, equity, mate. That's good to hear. I hope you guys loved Tectacular last week. We certainly had a ball talking about it. Uh, we could have gone on for a lot longer, but we thought we'd keep it nice and short for you. <laughs> this episode, we're also excited to bring another one of our expert investors we have an interview lined up for you with a guy called daniel want yeah now daniel want probably isn't a household name but anyone who's looking to get started investing uh teach themselves a thing or two he's definitely uh someone worth listening to yeah he, uh he'll tell us his story in the interview but you'd be hard pressed to find someone who more fits the title of a self-taught investor yeah this guy is next level smart and uh, we had a great time interviewing him. So we uh, hope you enjoy the interview. As always, keep the feedback coming and we we'll look forward to giving you a wrap on my tour of Italy <laughs> at, our, at our next episode. Yeah, I can't wait. <laughs> Equity out. <laughs> Daniel Wan is the very definition of a self-taught investor. After dropping out of university with the belief he could teach himself the skills necessary to succeed in finance, Daniel has had a meteoric rise and is now the co-founder and chief investment officer at Prerequisite Capital. Daniel, thank you for joining us. No worries. So why don't we start with a little bit about your background? What got you interested in investing and what were some of the first investments that you ever made? Yeah, well, uh, probably about... 18, 19 years ago, I was at high school and 
my business study at, at high school at the time, I was either going to go into finance and business kind of general direction, or I was probably actually going to go into the Air Force. I realized that I probably wasn't that cut out for um, a military type culture in terms of order taking and, you know, limited capacities to be able to think for yourself, at least at a lower level, or at least that was my perception at the time. So I chose business and, and finance. I saw a um, my business studies teacher actually one day played a um, basically a video of this guy who worked from home off his computer, pretty much spent half the day at the beach, and he did this thing called futures trading. And I was kind of sort of come again. What what does this guy do? Um, you know, I was kind of fascinated by that. But this was after I'd already sort of developed an interest in business and even the share market to a, a low degree as well. Anyway, and so that was kind of the key major sort of domino that, that fell that then, you know, set into motion a lot of other things. Out of high school, I grew up south of Coffs Harbour in New, New South Wales. And uh, out of high school, I, I wanted to actually get into an investment bank, but they weren't taking people out of high school. Um, and so I ended up in an accounting firm in Sydney uh, while I started a university degree. It was actually a, a fantastic experience in that I started in a, a firm in an audit division um, and got a fair bit of exposure as well uh, through that time to corporate fraud investigations. So learn a lot about a lot of things pretty quick and, and how to read financials and all the, the nitty gritty of, of what happens there. And at the same time, obviously doing a um, degree or part time at the time uh, and found I got pretty sick of accounting pretty quick, um, shifted over more into finance and then thought, well, I should probably try a bit more of economics as well. Economics was a real eye-opener in that I, I basically, especially in the early subjects, and, and you would essentially have the professors explain to you why the assumptions underpinning the economics they were teaching you were ridiculous and not necessarily in touch with reality. And that was fair enough, you know, we'd all sort of make jokes about that sort of thing. But then between the first principle or the first assumptions that underpin at least what we were taught back then in economics, and I don't think it's too much different today, but, you know, between the assumption sort of level of teaching and getting more complicated into the higher frameworks, all of a sudden I started to notice the, the teachers and the lecturers and things going from basically ridiculing the, the assumptions to actually a quasi-religious belief in these big complicated frameworks that they then construct you know i struggled a lot with that not so much in understanding the the concepts but just in some in, in how is this robust you know because if the foundations are still ridiculous then who cares what you build on top of these things and, and pretty quick i started to learn the hard way that at least in the institution i was in um you know they don't necessarily want to think or even, it seems, construct a better understanding of the world. And, you know, I, I kind of pretty quickly was left with the impression that, you know, you're actually not supposed to think. You're just supposed to go and read other people's stuff and try and quote them and, you know, write these big bibliographies and, and any original thought is kind of taboo, at least in those early levels. But we were still learning about stuff that was more applicable, I thought, to Mars. And so pretty quick I started to realise that, look, if I'm going to have any future in this industry or in as an investor or you know ideally in time as an investment professional 
yeah, I can't be learning the stuff that they're trying to teach me because it seems ridiculous and just out of touch with what I was at the time thinking was reality. In the end, I just quit uni. I thought I could do a better job teaching myself than they could. Um, so I basically moved back from Sydney. Um, everyone thought I was nuts because at that time I was progressing quite a bit in different realms and especially from a career sense and starting to do the interviews with the investment banks and all this sort of thing. And um, I thought, nah, I've got to get back to basics and, and just try and get schooled somehow. And so I pretty much walked away from all that and went back to the family home back south of Coffs Harbour and spent a few years, must have been a bit over three years as a hermit. Um, and every second week I'd have another box of books rocking up on the doorstep. Fortunately, you know, I... Um, with the internet and Amazon, you, you have a pretty, pretty much a global reach. And mm. uh, I'd find a lot of the more interesting and useful books were actually out of print. And I'm having to buy these secondhand things that were printed decades or even half a century ago, even in some cases. And only to find that, you know, the world just doesn't change. It's still run by people and it's still all the same dynamics. And, and funnily enough, you know, I've spent over the last 15 years especially, a hell of a lot of time trying to understand banking systems and capital flows and, and all sorts of things in a more intense sort of manner. And especially when it comes to banking systems, surprisingly enough, I, I probably learnt more from guys that were around like 100 years ago, 200 years ago even, about even how the banking system works today mm. because the principles are all the same. It's sort of same old stuff, same basic principles. It's just a different sort of technological and regulatory sort of era with a slight, you know, different context from a geopolitical perspective, but same old stuff. And so, you know, nothing that's happening now hasn't really in some way, shape or form happened before, or at least a lot of really smart switched on people have understood similar dynamics that are happening now back you know, many decades or even a century or so ago and warned about such times. And so when I quit uni, I, I basically had two questions I set out with. Is one, I wanted to figure out how the world works, as you do, and young and naive enough to just have a crack at that, um, with a view to being able to express or use that understanding of how the world works um, to being able to navigate investment markets. Now, the second question was, actually a little bit more sort of less big picture but how could I walk into any business and grow it was sort of the second objective and so running and I also you know in pendulum swinging from the academic university environment I pretty much resolved especially in those early days years um, I didn't want to see another textbook I in fact I didn't really want to learn from anyone who hadn't had a track record of success in whatever field whether it's business or investing or um even anticipating to some degree, you know, future events. And so that was sort of the criteria. I wanted people who were in touch with the real world, who'd, who'd actually had demonstrable success in the real world in, in terms of understanding it, operating within it, and even anticipating it to some degree. And so I didn't know where to start. So I just bought books on everything and every one I could sort of come across and and so if you'd read a particular guy who was successful in business or investing and he mentions a certain set of concepts or some other guy then you you know you write the concept down or that guy down or and go through the you know anyone he mentions as you know in a um who he holds or she holds in a high regard and then track books down on 
him or her and you know mm. and so one book would turn into five which would turn into another you know mm. 20 and it, it just sort of things would breed breed like rabbits and so in those early days more or less just trying to learn everything i can about history psychology sociology economics like what i would more call a, a real world type economics finance banking systems and business even marketing sales and and strategy and all of this sort of stuff because everything i learned pretty quick was interrelated it's, it's very mm. hard to understand one field without having some exposure or loose understanding of a of another field or a seemingly unrelated field in the early days it was a bit intimidating because it, every the world just seemed to get more and more complicated the more books you read you know mm. <laughs> you start to realize how much you just don't have a clue and in some ways you almost feel like stumbling in the dark and you get a bit overwhelmed you know you sort of just keep on chipping away and Daniel at, at what point did you realize you'd well did you feel comfortable then that you'd learnt enough and and what was the next step uh well to be honest I went through a cycle every three to six months of you know, because I burnt every bridge, right? And that tends to motivate you uh, pretty strongly, especially yeah. when everyone thinks you're nuts. Yeah. And so every three to six months, I'd go through this cycle where I was just getting blown away at all the different things I was learning. But then, you know, come every four months, I'd be like, oh, I've ruined my life, you know. <laughs> what have I done type thing? But then I'd get perspective and go, no, I'm learning some really fascinating stuff. How can this not be profitable to me in the future? And so you'd keep going. And at the same time, I um, opened up a uh, futures trading account Okay. Of, of all things. And fortunately, I'd learned enough about risk management and money management to basically not have a clue what I was doing, but still come out okay, um, mm. more or less. And so, you know, quite a big sort of roller coaster ride type season but fortunately I'd, I'd grasped a lot of what the old guys were saying so to speak or at least in all the different books I was reading about risk management and it was, it's just so essential um, and that stopped me from basically blowing up um, in those early years of you know I look back now and I just you know I just like wow I, I just didn't have a clue really so that was just absolutely fascinating and I, I learned really quickly that just as important as gaining an understanding of the world and markets and risk management, etc. Just as important as actually gaining an understanding of yourself and your own psychology and, and all the mind games that come with it. Mm. And when you're on a, a boom bust sort of roller coaster ride, of um, you know, because I figured the only way to learn about investing or trading and things is to just throw yourself in there and start doing it. And that's correct. Uh, but in hindsight, I probably wouldn't have risked as as much of what I'd saved up. Uh, leading up to that <laughs> but mm. fortunately the risk management kind of bailed me out and so I was kind of blown away actually by the risk management side of things in that it was able to preserve any big sort of blows to the the money that I'd saved up and so you know I had a lot of wins and and a lot of potentially larger losses but I was fortunately able to cut them short pretty quick and and so I learned a lot about the value of risk management in the early days I just didn't really or in hindsight I had no competitive advantage or no really consistent methodology or an edge in in what i was doing in in trying to actually even operate in those markets and so it was all pretty random so where where did the decision come to sort of rejoin the broader financial sector and you know put your yeah, well, after to a use? few years of that uh, one of the other aspects of figuring out how the world worked 
that overarching question that I was driving towards was that I wanted to work out a way to operate in the, the markets, but in a way where, in theory, what I did wasn't liquidity constrained. Now, what I mean by that is in different markets, there's a certain amount of money that and you can actually trade or invest behind certain strategies. You know, so if you are only trading in the smallest, you know, small or micro cap stocks say on the asx and these are the smallest companies that basically sort of trade on the the asx for example they basically have no liquidity so it's kind of hard to buy and sell and and all of this sort of thing and and you can usually only buy and sell these stocks using small amounts of money relative to say the professional funds management industry or the the larger amount of money and so i knew i wanted to move more in that macro bigger picture you know, I was more interested in studying countries rather than companies, so to speak. Right. And so after a few years of being the hermit and realizing I had to get back in the real world again, I um, moved up to Brisbane. I didn't really want to go back to Sydney again. And more long story short, I, I basically typed in literally into Google global macro hedge fund just to <laughs> see what would come up. Um, and turns out, turned out at the time there was actually a global macro hedge fund that kicked off in Brisbane about a year earlier to, to when I did it, when I just ran the, the Google search, so to speak. And I was pretty surprised, but it was founded by a, an ex-proprietary trader from uh, BT and, and Macquarie. And, you know, he's at one time there the most profitable FX trader in Australia and all of this sort of stuff. And so he'd had quite a successful career in proprietary trading previous to that. And anyway, so I went to the con contact us page and just dialed their generic number and went through to the receptionist and fortunately i don't know she felt sorry for me or something but i just basically told <laughs> her like look i want to talk to um david who was the chief investment officer of the and the founding one of the founding directors of that global macro fund and uh, i said look he doesn't know me i want to do what he's doing in 10 years i just wanted to try and call him up and offer to buy him lunch one day you know, just to pick his brain so to speak and um anyway she sort of said look leave it with me and um dave called me back a little bit later that day and he, he actually gave me a bit of a grilling just you know who are you what's the story and all the rest of it and i was basically you know same old thing you wouldn't know me from a bar of soap can i buy you lunch and blah 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 and um Anyway, he basically agreed to catch up for brekkie a few days later. So we caught up and I just basically explained everything I'd done and even the analysis that I was doing on the world at that point in time. And, and by that time, I developed a pretty unique way of looking at the world, mostly through a, um, I'd spent a lot of time studying uh, what is essentially known as um, like complex systems thinking and like complex adaptive systems analysis type methodologies and all of this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a can of worms and it's not as complicated as it actually sounds. Anyway, I figured I, I actually was fortunate enough in a similar manner to reach out to a, another guy uh, who was in the US who actually ended up becoming a mentor as well. But he's basically like a world-renowned expert on systems thinking, but as applied to businesses and all of this sort of stuff for performance improvement, etc. And I figured, well, all these methodologies are all just, they, they arise out of, ironically, quantum physics, even though that sounds complicated, but these principles of systems analysis and thinking actually aren't that complicated. 
and I thought, well, the ultimate complex system was the world and mm. economics and the financial markets. Let's just try and apply some of those concepts to that. And um, so I'd been doing that for Australia, Australia and the US and, and broadly speaking, the, the major markets of the world. And so I started to run that through through all of that sort of analysis with um, this chief investment officer. And by the end of brekkie, which ended up being quite a long brekkie, he more <laughs> or less invited me to um, up to the office in, in Brizik and met the other directors, spent more time talking and he basically offered me a job as an analyst. And I thought, wow, this is awesome. And I was still in the mentality of, hey, I've got a long way to go. I, I want to learn rather than earn you know, in mm. terms of earn money, so to speak, I was still in learning mode. And so I found, you know, I would have paid them or at least done it for free, mm. volunteered to work with them, let alone get paid to do what I loved and to also learn more. Funnily enough, from that experience in that, and that was, you know, sort of leading into, that was in 2007, sort of leading into the GFC in 2008 and all the rest of it that followed on after that. And a lot of that analysis that I did in 2007, especially from that systems perspective, ended up being spot on and a lot of people were sort of witnessed all of that and that sort of started to catapult, especially when it all started to unfold more or less to a T in 2008 in the different macro markets. And so because a lot of people kind of had front row seats and were witness to that analysis methodology and the analysis I'd done in 2007 and then watching everything unfold in 2008, that sort of started to kick me off quite a bit. And mm. I started to pick up uh, research and consulting clients and all of this sort of stuff outside of that macro fund as well. I mean, your journey sounds amazing and early on very, you know, you had to absorb a lot of information, do a lot of reading and that sort of stuff. For people that are just beginning to invest and are a bit overawed by all the information and sort of jargon that's out there at the moment, what are some things that you would recommend that they do to get the ball rolling? Basically, the, the best thing to do is just try to watch, you know, buy books that are just focused on interviewing investors. So successful investors and traders of all different types, you know, everything from the, the Warren Buffett type, you know, stock picking valuation type approach through to currency traders through to everyone else in between. Now, mm. um, in a practical sense, a, a man by the name of Jack Schwager wrote a whole series of books and every chapter is just another interview with a highly successful investor. Okay. Now, he, he wrote this series of books. It's called Market Wizards. Uh, I think it was he might have started in the early 90s maybe. I, I can't remember. But anyway, over the last 20 or 30 years, he's he's done basically a whole series of more or less very timeless sort of interviews with some fantastic investors and traders of all different types. And the reason I suggest that you probably want to start there it'll simply expose you to all of the different things that are out there. Because when you start, you, you don't know what you don't know and you don't even know what's out there and, and all the rest of it. Now, there will be a lot of terminology in there, but Jack Schwager does a, usually, from memory, he's done a good job on like putting a glossary in at the back and explaining the odd term here or there. You know, it, and so it's a crash course in kind of learning the investment and trading and market type lingo and language that you've you kind of got to pick up every field has its own language and step number one usually is actually learning what that language is and all the the jargon and the mumbo jumbo of what people are actually talking about yeah so these interviews are a good crash course in that and also you're just exposed to everything because the key to actually becoming 
a successful investor or trader or whatever it is you want to do in the future is actually finding an approach or an, and a, a way of operating that is actually more of a natural expression of yourself. So the okay. way you're wired, your personality, uh, what your interests are, what you're interested in, all of this sort of stuff. Because if it's not just a natural expression of who you are and your personality and uh, then you're not really going to be able to sustainably run whatever it is you're doing um, and be interested and passionate enough and curious enough about whatever it is you're doing to actually be successful. Unfortunately, investing and trading, in, in, a, in some respects, it's a bit of an all-or-nothing type endeavor. You, you kind of got to throw yourself into a fair bit. However, you know, there are ways of operating and you know, more basic first principles that you can stick to that will kind of keep you safe. But at the same time, it all just comes down to what are you interested in. Uh, and yeah. by reading books like Jack Schwagger's, another uh, set of books that are a little bit more recent, uh, written by uh, someone, his surname is Drobny, uh, D-R-O-B-N-Y. Um, okay. He tends to interview, I think the, the two main books, are Inside the House of Money and then The Invisible Hands. He tends to interview more like hedge fund type managers and, and different things, but that's a sort of a more recent version of Jack Schwagger's uh, Market Wizard books. Throughout all of them, you kind of get exposed to a lot of different investment methodologies, trading approaches, different markets, all sorts of things. And then once you've sort of absorbed all of them, and plus there's so many timeless principles and lessons and stuff that these very experienced traders and investors share during those interviews, mm. that it's actually a fantastic crash course in everything anyway. Yeah, nice. sort of books you can you fill up notepads or whatever it is you like to do in terms of scribbling down principles or precepts or great ideas or interesting ways of looking at things or whatever it is and they they also cover off a lot on the psychology side of things which is just as important in learning to effectively master yourself and your own all the head games mind games that sort of come into play when you start to get involved with investing and markets and and all this sort of thing Great. I think I think that's some great advice for all of our listeners who are, you know, unsure of how to start. Reading those books that you suggested, Jack Swagger and Drobny, sound like really, really good places to sort of learn and familiarize themselves with some of the different investing styles out there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a four-week trial, 
plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So from that, what would you say your investing style or you know, what are some of the core philosophies that, uh, that you stick to when you invest? And um, did that change over time? Yeah, I mean, they've definitely evolved uh, in time. I mean, but there was a couple of underlying observations or thoughts that kind of have stuck with me since those early days. Um, I mean, one of them, for example, was there's there's an old quote by, um, I think he's Jack Welch. Basically, he says, if you don't have a competitive advantage, don't compete. All right. Now, in business, we intuitively kind of get a sense for that because without competitive advantages, you don't really have a basis for um, expecting outsized profits or any profits, quite frankly, because you'll, you'll have no bargaining power. You'll be a price taker instead of a price maker in business, et cetera, et cetera. And so I figured that that was just as applicable to the markets, which it is. You know, you're trying to develop some sort of array of competitive advantages or some form of an edge that puts the, the odds in your favor, so to speak. Now, in those early days, I'd actually done a lot of like, especially having the the accounting background and a little bit of finance as well. I've done a lot of, say, security analysis or stock, you know, like fundamental type analysis, like a Warren Buffett style type of thing. But more and more, I was gravitating towards the bigger picture sort of dynamics and changes and what was happening in the world. And there was two main reasons for that, because when I was doing these, you say, valuation models for pick a company and, and going through all the financials, I started to realize that you can analyze these businesses till the cows come home, but you know, 60% plus of what actually drives a change in the share market, uh, in the share price of most of these businesses are, are actually related to bigger picture macro level things. And even in the valuation type frameworks and spreadsheets and analysis that I do, you have to put in assumptions for like currencies and interest rates and all sorts of things. And in the general level, you know, you'd have to get a sense for the general level of economic activity and in, in an economy, depending on what company you're analyzing to get a sense for or a forward looking sense for revenues and, and all sorts of things. And so I started to realize that, look, you know, you can be fantastic at analyzing the nuts and bolts of these companies. But at the end of the day, one of the biggest drivers of ultimate performance is still, for most stocks, macro level dynamics, these assumptions we make about interest rates and all the rest of it. And so I started to realize that I I need to learn a lot more about the macro side of things. The other thing too, that I realized in from a competitive advantage perspective was that I'm not well connected. I mean, I grew up basically in the bush in rural rural Australia. I hardly knew anyone that invested in stocks, let alone, you know, knew what a bond was or, you know, how the currency markets, all of that stuff, right? And so I, I wasn't exactly going to be privy to like inside information, not that that's legal, but I, I would never have an edge in terms of information flow from a... Um, a company specific type perspective mm. or at least this was my thinking in the early days and and that's still largely true more or less but i also realized that look when it came to the bigger picture trends and macro changes and interest rate trends and currency trends and and the broader stock market itself and commodities etc there actually was no such thing as inside information at that level at that big picture level and so i'm like ah oh, you, you kind of 
everyone has access to pretty much everything, all the different data sets that are out there, and there's no one data set or piece of knowledge that really will, you know, that you could even class as being material or inside information type thing because the, the world is just too big and too complex and these markets are just too big to to basically have to worry about that. So I figured, well, at that bigger macro level, it's more of an even playing field. I can sort of develop some competitive advantages or an edge or a better understanding in certain areas than a lot of the people I'm competing against, or at least that was my thinking, which is more or less true, but I, I didn't realize, you know, it's a pretty tough, tough game yeah. out there. But anyway, and so that drove me more and more towards the macro level stuff. Uh, as well and I was interested I'd always been fascinated about how countries you know and societies you know would rise and fall and all of this sort of thing and and the bigger picture dynamics around asset markets and and uh, booms and busts and all the the rest of it and and so that tended to take me towards the bigger picture stuff and so now what I do more is not so much analyze companies per se but still my main focus is, is is countries and so, yeah, I've headed in that bigger picture direction more so than picking stocks. Can you give us an example then of what things you're specifically investing in when you say, you know, you're following the, the bigger picture and the macro trends? What assets? Uh, okay. So, for example, we run portfolios for our clients, most mostly here in Australia. And, yep. you know, when you're analyzing even half the companies on the on the ASX we are such a Australia is such a small aspect of the broader world you know I think both from a GDP perspective so the size of our economy and also if you were to take the size of our banking system for example like our commercial banks like the big four plus all the rest of them and our central bank as well we only come to about you know one to two percent roughly of global GDP and global sort of money and banking assets for example and so we really are and especially the way the world has kind of been configured the last 20 years especially you know we're kind of that flea on the monkey's back and that monkey is more or less china and there's a symbiotic relationship between china and the u.s that you really need to get your head around and so in order to analyze australia you know you really actually need to start with the u.s and start with china and then some of the other different things that are happening in the world. And then, you know, after you've probably spent 60% of your time on all of that, then you can start to look at Australia in some form of proper context. And especially because of our linkages with the world. And, And so we run portfolios. Our main objective is actually to preserve purchasing power You know, we're trying to actually generate a a positive return over any two-year rolling period. So, for example, when I was back at that hedge fund back starting in 2007 and going through the GFC, we actually did really well. I mean, by the end of 2009, we were starting to win awards because we basically saw it all coming. We were able to make the most of it in the markets and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But at the same time, I'm like, man, there's a lot of people that got smoked, including my own family and friends to a large degree as well and I'm like you know we've got to take some of this knowledge that's out there and actually package it in a way where an average person can actually have the benefit of you know because it's like these things like the GFC for example in in some regards you can simplistically paint as just history repeating 
yeah. the same sort of cycle, same sort of stuff, but you, you've got to do your homework to be able to get a little bit of a forward-looking probabilistic sort of view of things. And so anyway, three and a half, four years ago, um, with a few other guys, we founded PCM. And so we basically run mostly superannuation portfolios for people, but we do it in a way we don't use derivatives. We don't like we don't use futures and stuff or options. We don't use leverage. Uh, we okay. don't sell short anything. So it's just long only. The only things we use are securities that are traded on the ASX or the New York Stock Exchange. Um, okay. And the reason for that, and even the securities we do use on on those two uh, exchanges, are big, boring, highly liquid securities, right? And so what we do is more or less like an asset allocation. We take a dynamic or a slightly active approach to managing the risks that are confronting both the share market, the bond markets, currency markets, precious metals, so gold, etc., mm-hmm. and cash. You know, we take a bit of a global view, but our main objective is actually to preserve purchasing power, so capital preservation first. We, we don't really want any of our investors and most half of our clients are actually family and friends anyway so we we kind of eat what we cook but yeah we don't want to put people on roller coaster rides basically mm. Uh, mm. which is the typical experience of most people in superannuation over the last 10 years has just been one heck of a roller coaster ride you know i do that we construct these portfolios using a combination of shares um, yep. you know share market both domestically and internationally but only through you know, simple, boring, big, liquid, you know, asset class type ETFs on the ASX and the New York Stock Exchange, depending on whether it's the more conservative or more proactive strategy we're talking about. Bonds, uh, mm-hmm. so government bonds, uh, mostly just Australian or US. Now, at different points in time, we'll either be underweight or overweight these different asset classes, right? But when we always maintain a fairly diversified stance that makes our portfolios quite resilient. So whatever happens, something will go down, something will go up, and we should be able to maintain the resiliency of, of the capital in these portfolios over time, irrespective of what happens. So, so we have shares, bonds, precious metals, cash, say a little bit, depending on the portfolio of foreign currency exposure. Like, for example, we might own some US shares, for example, and we'll choose not to hold them on a hedged basis. So we'll get the benefit of, say, the US dollar going up against our Australian dollar falling against the US dollar. But then other times we might choose to to hold those US shares or assets on a hedged basis. So we'll neutralize or knock out the currency aspect of the equation. Yeah, that's basically the bulk of what we do. And in order to do that, we use a fairly simple common sense sort of framework that's fairly easy to explain and understand. And and we just take a conservatively dynamic but active kind of approach to effectively, if a particular market's going up, whether it's the share market or the bond market or whatever, we'll tend to be overweight that asset class. And if a particular market's going down, like whatever it is, we'll tend to be underweight that asset class and we just sort of rebalance the portfolios a little bit according to the major trends out there in the world and in the asset markets yeah right and so you know it's fairly simple and always liquid and transparent so given your focus on big macro features in the economy and um complex systems would be remiss if we didn't ask you what you thought about the state of the economy at the moment you know you you turn on the 
the finance news and you can hear everything from the, the crash is imminent to buy, buy, buy. So do you have anything that you're sort of really paying attention to at the moment and anything that our listeners should maybe uh, keep a close eye on? Yeah. Um, first, I just need to touch upon one sort of principle, um, a bit more of a qualification type principle, but then, you know, I'll basically give a quick summary of what I'm seeing in, from an economic and then also just a major markets type perspective. So one of the things that I have learnt that you need to do as an investor is not so much try to predict stuff, but try to identify when you need to adapt, right? So you need to watch the way the system or the economy or the markets are evolving and adapting more so than trying to predict some end game outcome, right? Because you, you, you need to stay focused on that process of change rather than any end result that you think might ultimately happen so to speak, because it is an adaptive system out there. Now, having said that, you know, we're pretty late in the cycle in a lot of things. The only real economy ultimately that has been holding up economic growth in the world has been the US. They're very late in their economic cycle. They're they're starting to get due for, you know, a recession, even at the most simplistic level of going, well, you know, you normally get a, a recession every, you know, somewhere between five to 10 years. And the US has been going quite a while now since technically they came out of their recession. And so we're kind of just on a, on a time cycle perspective kind of due. Same thing for Australia. We've got so much complacency and so much latent risk in our system. It's, um, it's quite surprising. Uh, we're well overdue for some form of a, you know, at least some sort of a cyclical kind of washout or, you know, recessionary type conditions in the years to come, no doubt. There's no shortage of risks. People are aware of a lot of the indebtedness story, especially at a household level, but they might be a little less aware of our banks and how unbalanced they they basically are. So, for example, if you look around the equivalent types of banks in the in the world as our own say westpac cba and nab and anz and all this sort of thing a a typical commercial bank in the world will typically have maybe 20 to 25 percent of its lending uh, in the direction or related to property uh, whereas our big four banks more in the 60 to 65 percent of their lending is related to property and so they're pretty unbalanced their achilles heel on top of that is that they've got exposures to, um, you know, they're pretty dependent still, uh, albeit on a smaller scale than what they were, say, 10 years ago on wholesale international funding markets. And those wholesale international funding markets have been under pressure and have been basically, um, there's, there's quite a lot of stress and issues building up and starting to come to the surface in that sort of global banking system and, and funding market world i don't know when or you know or if that sort of manifests to more acute problems you know say from our australian banks perspective in the nearer term but you know the direction those trends are heading in and are not necessarily great and then on top of you know so our household level has got too much debt and somewhat unbalanced our banks are unbalanced and have a few achilles heels that could really cause them some grief and then on top of that the Chinese sort of credit cycle has been quite extreme 
by nearly any standard. And a lot of the analysis we've, we do and have done, we just see so much, you know, the stresses are building in that Chinese system, trying to keep a lid on, on all the malinvestment and the, the credit overexpansion that they've had in the last 10 years, especially. You know, they were at quite an extreme point 10 years ago, but now they're at a ridiculously extreme point. You know, so in 2007, their entire banking system was seven, uh, roughly about seven trillion US dollars. Um, when the GFC came in 2008, 2009, they kind of panicked and just opened the floodgates on, you know, and instructed their banks and all the different institutions to just extend credit and debt like there's no tomorrow. And so in the space of like four years, they went from a $7 trillion US, US dollar type size of a banking system to about $30 trillion in about four years which is ridiculous on a whole lot of levels. They're currently at something like $36, $37 trillion uh, US. And so the only reason China has kind of powered ahead in the last 10 years is because they've just been on one hell of a debt binge and none of, about, none of what they've done you know, has any of the hallmarks of sustainability. Mostly all they've been doing the last four or five years is just trying to kick the can down the road and suppress the risks that are building in their system uh, and the volatility in their system in order to basically keep stability and some measure of growth. But, you know, there's only so much debt an economy can take before you start to hit saturation sort of levels. Anyway, these th those are more or less some of the headwinds that are starting to gather or the, the clouds that are starting to gather that are... Um, suggesting that you want to think about concepts of resiliency in your investing over the next three years because I think you're going to probably need it you know so is your portfolio resilient is your investment selections and activity a, a, you know you a little bit more focused on diversification and, and really being a little bit strong on the risk management side of things and the resiliency side of things more so than you know getting on the offense and taking on risk and or concentrated risks uh, and all this sort of stuff. So it's sort of we're coming into seasons where you probably want to be a little bit more defensively minded rather than offensively minded um, across a whole range of markets. For beginners, with just off that comment about developing sort of concepts of resiliency, without, you know, going into shorting and all that sort of stuff, what, what, what sort of strategies can a beginner do, you know, what, sell down in, into greater oh, percentage of cash or? Uh, yeah. I mean, basically, you, you know, you don't necessarily have to. In fact, using derivatives doesn't necessarily make you more resilient. In fact, that can just make you more inflexible and cause a bigger blow up, especially if you're doing it with leverage. And so moving in a direction of the resiliency tends to be more you know, focusing more on genuine diversification of the different mm -hmm. investments and assets that you hold. Yep. So if you've got a portfolio of like 20 stocks, who cares in a problem or a crisis, you know, they're all going to basically behave the same, right? Yeah. And so diversify them with different asset classes. So some sort of an allocation to cash or some sort of a small allocation to say precious metals a small allocation to bonds, for example, or whatever it is, you know, just start to diversify a little bit. So you've got parts of your portfolio that move in different directions to other parts in that portfolio. 
you know, it's a bit of an oversimplified sort of strategy or approach. To take things to an extreme, just to illustrate the point, for example, there's an old guy who passed away, I think, a decade ago. He's by the name of Harry Brown. He wrote a very simple but effective book called The, per- the Permanent Portfolio. Now, there's no perfect way of constructing a, um, you know, a bulletproof portfolio. Mm. It just isn't one. But, you know, he's, his approach to just moving in, a, in the direction of resiliency was about as least bad as you're going to find type thing. Um, and he, he basically would say, look, if all you did was just allocate 100% of your portfolio, 25% to cash, 25% to equities, 25% to, you know, longer dated government bonds, 25% to 20, uh, precious metals like gold, and then stuck your head in the sand, rebalanced once a year, come hell or high water, you're probably going to preserve your purchasing power more most of the time. Yeah, and right. so the logic was for growth conditions, that's equities, that's a share market. They do good when everything is going well. For recessions or you know, crisis situations, that's cash. You know, if you have cash when others don't, then you've got an ability to buy high quality assets that have, you know, basically been smashed down in price. You mm. get them get them at bargain basement type prices. Anyway, so, and then you, inflation, then simplistically, that's why you hold a bit of gold, for example. And deflation or longer dated uh, government bonds tend to do really, really well in disinflation or deflationary type conditions. Uh, and so the world is only ever going to morph into some combination of those four conditions. So growth, recession, inflation or deflation, some combination of them. So mm. his logic was, well, one of those asset classes is going to do okay. Another one's going to get smoked and unbalanced. It'll all even out and preserve your purchasing power. And, um, you know, if you look back over the history of markets and you know, say over the last 30 years in Australia, the last 50, 100 years in the US and 100 years in, in the UK, you know, that basic allocation approach more or less works. You know, it's about mm. as robust or resilient as you're going to get. Um, the only problem with that approach is that it's a bit of an extreme one in that, sure, you'll be quite resilient and you'll preserve purchasing power, but you're also not going to really generate much return out of the thing. You just keep pace with inflation yeah. You know, more often than not. But that's an extreme example of resiliency, for example. And the other benefit of that sort of a portfolio is that it's it's liquid. You can convert it to cash any time. One of the things you got to be careful of, especially in this world, is um, what happens behind a unit price, you know, and managed funds. When things go wrong or surprises happen in the world, then you start to realize that all that fine print that you sign up for in these managed funds and all you ever see is a unit price right i don't know to what degree you've experienced this but you know there's all sorts of stuff that happens behind that unit price by way of fees by way of potential for locking up money and not being able to liquidate or get your money out in different conditions and and all sorts of stuff you know it obviously depends on the fund and all of this sort of thing and so that was one of the other benefits at an extreme example and i'm not actually recommending that you go and do this right this is all just a general discussion of principle for example yeah but yeah harry brown's approach you know it illustrates the point and those four asset classes so cash equities bonds and precious metals they're about as unrelated to each other as you're going to get right there's probably also a small argument for a small degree of say foreign currency just to protect yourself against your domestic currency 
getting smashed for whatever reason, but that kind of is gets into the the logic around precious metals as well. And so it's all, you know, but that would be, and in a more practical sense, how do you get more resilient? Well, start to pay down and get out of debt if you can, build up your savings buffers, develop some more competitive advantages, either in your career or your business or whatever, Mm. you know, and there's nothing makes you more competitive than, you know, high quality education. And that doesn't necessarily mean going to a university, but learning more, developing a capacity to adapt. It's it's sort of that capacity to adapt in the in the midst of adversity that's really what resiliency is all about. You know, mm. so how can you make sure you're not inflexible? Because if you're inflexible in any realm, like you've got too much debt, too little savings, too little income or income that is vulnerable to disruption, um, then you're very inflexible and that's when bad things happen. But if you're flexible, trying to build savings, trying to reduce debt, flexible, you know, kind of resilient income streams or, you know, educating yourself to be more attractive to your employer or different employers, different skill sets, or if you're a business owner, how can you, you know, develop different competitive advantages to sort of make sure that, you know, you're the business that's left standing in any adverse negative surprise type event, et cetera, et cetera. So it's thinking about resiliency um, mm. not having big ridiculous overheads, you know, if you're a business owner or even a person, not living a lifestyle that sort of, you know, you have no breathing space and yeah. um, you're overcommitted and blah, blah, blah. So resiliency is a con and, you know, it, I use this word, but one other way of thinking about it is um, like when you look at a natural system in the environment or out there in the world, Typically, the ones that survive and thrive in time typically have the character trait of being two-thirds resilient and one-third efficient, all right? Uh, and so, you simplistically, you could say two-thirds defensive and flexible, adaptive, you know, come what may, hmm. and one-third, you know, productive and really efficient in what they do and competitive advantages and all this sort of stuff. And that's probably the right sort of balance. They, they typically find in nature if that balance gets skewed in either direction, like, say, too resilient and not efficient enough, well, they just simply become obsolete and too inefficient and they, they just basically die. They cease to exist as a system. And if they're too efficient, too focused on productivity and, or just whatever it is that that system does and not resilient enough, too inflexible, mm. well, it only takes the next storm and they're basically out of action. You know, wow. and so the the balance in nature even seems to be about two thirds two thirds resilient, one third efficient, and so mm. even that translates into our own portfolios. We sort of have that philosophy permeate through most of what we do, both as a business and then running portfolios and even assessing markets. And and anyway, you get the point. Mm. But yeah, <laughs> thinking about resilience would be highly advised, at least for the next three to four years. And if you've got purchasing power and cash and we do have a couple of hiccups and other people who haven't been sort of as prepared and and or given thought and action to that concept of resiliency and they're sort of hurting or asset markets have a few hiccups then you've got the liquidity and the cash and the purchasing power still intact to take advantage of all that and mm -hmm. that's the other trick is that one of the best sort of strategies you can have is knowing full well that every seven to 10 years on average, you're going to get some sort of a hiccup in the world, whether it's a recession or a crisis or whatever, mm. or in your country. And so every seven to 10 years, you know that you're going to have an opportunity to buy high quality assets yeah. cheaply. 
Yeah. And so make sure you're always prepared for that, especially yeah. when you're starting to recognize that, oh, we've been, say, five to seven, ten years since we've had the last hiccup. Maybe just by sheer passing of time and there's just the cycle of history, maybe we're getting closer to the next one. Mm. In terms of building this um, sort of resilience, very simplistically, you know, cash and equities are, are quite easy. But for our listeners, what are some ways in which you can, what are the easiest ways of buying, say, government bonds or precious metals? Is it as easy as buying um, well, stocks through Comsec or? Yeah, go and, if you go onto the ASX website, they actually, in different parts of the website, explain what exchange-traded funds, exchange-traded products and bonds actually trade on the ASX. Um, and so Australian government bonds, for example, if you thought interest rates were going down or you just wanted to diversify a little bit more, and once again, this is not obviously specific advice, right? There's just a general yeah. awareness of what's out there. There's, there's a, the great, a great starting point is to go to the ASX website and punch in government bonds and it'll take you to a couple of education pages and prices and what's traded and all of this sort of stuff. The only problem with this, especially because, you know, the idea is that we're talking at a beginner level is that a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'd still highly recommend you go and find some people who know what they're doing, um, yeah. talk to them, you know, find a qualified advisor, et cetera, et cetera, although that can be a can of worms. Basically, you want to find out when you go to any advisor, right, In the and I'm talking, say, financial planners, especially stockbrokers, number one, figure out how they're actually paid mm-hmm. because, you know, you follow the money and conflicted incentives, especially financial incentives, will result in most likely conflicted advice, even though it's probably stock standard stuff, but the whole industry is kind of a little bit, I think, a bit warped. Be very careful of people who get paid on a transactional basis, you know, like a stockbroking model. So they make money not by putting you necessarily into the best investments or stocks. They make money by activity, buying and selling stuff. You know, so really they if they're going to increase their earnings or go on that next holiday, they just they need to buy and sell more stuff in their client accounts to get more transactions and commissions, right? And even the financial planning industry kind of has a similar dynamic, although they try to have more state safeguards against this of putting, you know, in people in and out of different products, you know, whether they be managed fund products or insurance products or whatever, because they get commissions on the back of all of this. So number one, figure out how these advisors are getting paid and um, be very well aware of the fact that there are monetary incentives to the advice that they give you. A lot of these incentives make them look more and more like a used car salesman more so than a trusted financial advisor. And so, one, follow the money and figure out how they get paid. Two, especially if they're on an investment, from an investment perspective, do they eat their own cooking or do they just peddle out all this advice to people but they yeah. don't actually have their own money in the same sort of things or their own family and friends prepared yeah. to be put behind what they do etc etc and so there's no substitute for education and, and knowledge and but it's it's you know it's it's full on um it's it's mm. quite a journey you've got to be committed and you're going to run down a lot of rabbit holes and all i'd suggest is that in the early days or the early phases of your education in all these things just don't risk much when you're putting funds at risk 
um, because you're guaranteed you're going to be learning a whole heap of lessons. And usually when you're learning stuff in markets, it means you're losing money <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or you're having yeah. negative surprises. You know, there's an old saying that in any trade or investment, you will either grow richer or wiser, rarely both together. Right. Interesting. Mm. You know, there's another old saying that basically says a bull market, so a rising trend in a in a market, especially a multi-year trend, will make geniuses out of idiots. It's a bit of a harsh way of putting it, but <laughs> if you just happen to be in the right market at the right time for any reason, and you might have done your 100 pages of analysis, but who cares if it's the wrong analysis, but the thing went up and you made money, well, that's a false sense of security. And there's nothing yeah. worse than the, the thing actually keeps going up and you keep making money on that same strategy, whether it is some, you know, you don't really know whether what you are doing is legitimate or anchored to reality or not. You're just in a rising tide, you know, and if it's a rising multi-year trend, you know, that can lull a lot of people into a false sense of security, but they're not necessarily learning what really is driving these markets. You know, property is actually a fantastic example in Australia right now. If you think property markets are driven, especially overall at a country base, if you think they're driven largely by, say, demographics and interest rates, then, my gosh, you've got one hell of a learning curve coming. Um, Interesting. And so, you know, we've had a multi-year, even multi-decade rise in property prices and, and we've got so many experts out there it's ridiculous but most mm. of them don't really understand the the, mechan- the the dynamics in the broader system that actually goes to underpinning and driving property prices at, at the bigger picture level you know what makes them go up or down over multi-year multi-decade sort of perspectives and and so we've got a lot of experts out there that are incredibly complacent that have only ever seen good times. They've never really been through a, a serious cycle um, mm. before. And anyone that's basically been involved in property the last 20 years hasn't really seen a serious cycle before. And so, you know, it, it, it's a full-on endeavor, this mm. education. And mm. the, the best way to do it is to do it yourself. But all I'd suggest is start be a little bit paranoid about risk and only risk smaller amounts in your your beginning phases of your education because you can guarantee there's a whole world of experience that you haven't got yet and there's things you're not aware of. But after you've been through a cycle or so, then you can start to gain a bit more confidence, especially if you've kept on educating yourself and seeking out knowledge, etc. You mentioned the rise in property prices there. I'd be interested in your macro view of the world. Do you look at um, cryptocurrencies or the Bitcoin, or have a view on that? Yeah, that, that's not going to be a two-minute discussion. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, maybe another time we can open that can of worms. But In short, yeah, you mean, do look at it. <laughs> okay, so the, yeah, the, the two-minute version, right, if you're going to look at Bitcoin, and this is not advice, right, this is yeah, just yeah. general observations, You'd probably make the observation that, look, okay, what's my downside risk? Probably 100% over the next 10 years in, the, in a negative scenario type outcome for this, this currency dynamic, right? Or mm-hmm. quasi-currency, whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So your risk on the one hand is probably 100%. So, okay, cool. What's your upside? Well, depending on which optimistic scenario you go with, 
you know, you, you can be going from, you know, hundreds of percent to thousands of percent sort of upside over 10 to 20 years if we get the rosy scenarios kind of occur. You know, what's the balance of probabilities between the upside of quite a lot? Maybe if, you know, a, a confluence of really positive things kind of happen and we don't get negative surprises, well, what's right. that balanced with the downside potentially of, say, anywhere from 50 to 100%, probably 100%, maybe if if we got a negative confluence of surprises or, or things unfold over the next 10, 20 years. But see, that's enough of a starting point for thinking about, say, Bitcoin to then go, okay, well, if I have any exposure at all to this Bitcoin story, it's probably going to be really slow, really low because I know my risk over the next 10 years is probably anywhere from, you know, my downside risk is anywhere from 20% down to 100% wiped out, right? Yeah. So you're going to tend to scale your exposure to be pretty much to the point where you don't care or it's not going to matter if you if it if you lose it all in the next 10 years right um but your upside is is could be substantial depending on what occurs over what unfolds over the next 10 years for example and so maybe as a diversifier but ridiculously small you you think or look at it in that sort of those sorts of terms as a starting point and so your exposure is going to be really small as a credible currency it's kind of not credible um, just because it's too volatile it's not really a store of value yet yeah right Um, you might use it transactionally in the world you know so you want to transmit money from here to some other country it's probably going to be a bit cheaper more reliable a bit quicker whatever if you use bitcoin versus half the other ways but you're only going to use it on a transactional basis, but then convert Bitcoin into some other currency or money or asset that's a bit more stable, right? Because of yeah. its volatility, it's not really, you know, it doesn't have that store of value characteristic to it to actually kind of make it a bit more of a credible currency type possibility. Mm. Um, maybe it's just too early on in its journey, but until you start to see this volatility drop a bit, it's not really going to be a credible contender there's also a can of worms that we open which would be another discussion around the risk from a governmental point of view around the world Um, and really when it comes to bitcoin for example you know half the story is actually on the blockchain and the infrastructure under it yeah it's quite phenomenal that will no doubt revolutionize the uh, internal plumbing of financial markets and banks and everything else Mm. um, Mm. over the next 10 20 years Um, and that's quite phenomenal in, in its own right but see, you've, you've got, you know, I think I heard it was the Bank of England. Or I think it was Bank of China maybe as well, Chinese Central Bank. I'm pretty sure as the Bank of England has their own little project to create their own little cryptocurrency and all this sort of stuff. I know the wow. ASX is exploring blockchain quite proactively and some of our institutions in Australia actually seem to be on the forefront of at least trying to understand it better and its possible uses. But you know, whether it's Bitcoin or some other version of a crypto currency, like I got no idea that, you know, it goes beyond me. But when it comes to just looking at it from an investment lens, well, the first thing I want to get a grasp on, okay, what's my downside risk and what's my upside? Downside clearly is anything from 20 to 100% wiped out. And there's plenty of plausible scenarios that you could see where that would happen over the next 10 years. Yeah. Um, upside, well, you know, 
you've got the usual rosy sort of ridiculously bullish scenario that a lot of the promoters will give you. And yeah, I'm sure there's a possible pathway where that could maybe theoretically happen. And in that case, your upside is, is massive. Massive, um, yeah. But at the same time, I've seen so much, read so much, listened to so many uh, more informed people than I am on that particular subject that are, um, it's still early days. Even yeah, big that, unknown. You know, yeah, that's right. And so, yeah. you know, I wouldn't exactly attach a, a huge probability to that big upside scenario playing out. Anyway, but that's the, the short version that's... way of maybe even starting to think about it. But yeah, it's it's really a can of worms in its own right. Yeah, it's very interesting. Very topical at the moment. Yeah. Well, of course, and the, but the hallmark, you realise, that the fact that it is topical means we're probably closer to an intermediate-term top. Yes. Right? When yes. anything becomes too popular yeah. and it's being talked about out in broader society, you know that, yeah. well, it's probably the end of a, at least yeah. an intermediate-term sort of swing or trend, and so just be a bit cautious on the short to medium term, but mm. who knows? Yeah, all right. Well, Daniel, we really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. I think you've given us and our listeners a lot to think about and some really good starting points to think about where they want to go with their investing journey. If they want to uh, read more about you or hear more of what you have to say, is the best uh, place the prerequisite website? Yeah, definitely. So just go to www.prerequisite.com.au. I also, on a quarterly basis, tend to publish our um, our more general audience type uh, client letters, so quarterly client letters, and that oh, will yeah. give you a bit of an overview for, you know, loosely what we're seeing in different markets or on the horizon or what's happening. And, and so that can be one way to just sort of follow along where I try to write it for a bit of a broader audience. A lot of the other stuff we put out is a bit more on the intense side because we we also, besides running portfolios for, say, Australians in superannuation or outside of super, we do a lot of research for international investors. And so, yeah, we, we have a weird client base in that we just have a full spectrum of everyone, it, it seems. Right. But the quarterly letters are the more absorbable, easier to understand ones. That Perfect. I and they're published. They're a bit more Australian focused. Yeah, great. And and they can be found on the prerequisite website as well? Yeah, yeah. Just uh, go to the website and then on the managed portfolio tab up the top, click on that and you'll find our quarterly reports. And, um, and it also just talks a bit about how we approach running portfolios as well. Perfect. Well, yeah, thanks, Daniel. We really appreciate you taking the time and thanks for all your advice. Yeah, not a problem. Yeah, thank you. Hopefully, uh, we'll do a follow-up on the Bitcoin and blockchain at some point. (laughs) Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.